The reading uh, this morning is from uh, Daniel chapter 3. So it's on page uh, 1,298 of the uh, brown Bibles you have. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Remember why we're looking at this as a book, as a whole. And it has to do with what we saw. You might want to turn there, actually. At the beginning of 1 Peter, um, it's on page 1764, where Peter tells us, that, um, or tells Christians, he's writing to them, that they are, um, it's in verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles, or chosen exiles. Um, and the Christians are called chosen because God's called them, but they're called exiles because Whilst they know heaven or Zion is their home, they're not there yet. They're living in in Babylon. And so this book, the book of Daniel, becomes a kind of condensed picture of the various trials and challenges that are laid before the Christian, you, me, living in the city of man, Babylon, as opposed to the city of God, Zion. It's an amazingly... Um, condensed narrative of some of the some of the challenges that map onto your to your experiences in day to day life, and this one, I just have such um, an sense of expectation actually in, in when I was preparing this and just going through it about what God's going to be doing in people's hearts today, because I think it's so um, pertinent to the kinds of struggles that we we face as Christians. In one Peter. One of the things that he picks up on is the fact that as a Christian living in the world, you're going to face trials, trials, temptations, fires. You're going to pass through fires. That's how he, the kind of language that he uses. 
So from verse 6 in the first chapter, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's writing to real Christians suffering in real ways on account of their faith, grieved by various trials. He says, why? Then he gives us various reasons for the kind of trials that we're put through. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, there's a first reason. That God allows people to, to experience things that are very uncomfortable, that challenge your faith, in order to demonstrate that your faith is true. If it never met any kind of resistance, you wouldn't know if it was real. He says, when it's, when it's put through something challenging, some kind of opposition, then you know that what you have is real. He says, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it gives us another reason there that ultimately proving that your faith is real is about giving glory to your Savior, Jesus. He wants Christ to be honored and glorified in our lives. Then he says, though you've not seen him, and this is really getting to the essence of the problem, isn't it? That when we face difficulties in life, the reason we're tempted to buckle is because we've not seen our Savior yet. It's the only reason you ever sin, is because you've not seen your Savior yet in all his glory. The minute you see him, the Bible tells us, you're going to become like him. You'll never want anything else. You know, the, the passages that we were reading, the songs we were singing, they're all about that experience that when the Christian sees Jesus, their heart is going to be so completely won over, they can never be seduced by anything else. But he says, though, though you've not seen him, you love him. And that's the tension that exists in the Christian life right now. You, you haven't yet seen him, but you do love him. And you're pulled towards him, so your faith is pulling you through and causing you to reject things that you shouldn't indulge in or shouldn't be crippled by so that you can run for him. And then he says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, when you face trials in the Christian life, part of it is to make you happier. What a weird thought. Somehow, God wants to increase your joy by exposing you to things through which you think, I'm going to be crushed. I can't face this. Temptations, sufferings, opposition, all that stuff. He says it's for the outcome of joy. And then he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What an assurance, he says, you're going to get through it. Now, this chapter in Daniel chapter 3 is basically what Peter's just written in a story format. And I want us to just consider it in sort of three sections. We're going to move through the basic arc of the storyline, looking at it in three sections. And we're going to think about the test of idolatry, the triumph of faith, and the salvation through fire. The test of idolatry, the triumph of faith, and the salvation through fire. And we're going to begin with thinking a little bit about idolatry, which is where the story begins. King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, made an image of gold. This story is a kind of a microcosm of the entire Christian life. Every challenge that you face in the Christian life is basically shown here in, in a narrative format. Because it all boils down to this basic issue. 
It depicts the essential core battle for your faith and your heart. The difference between somebody who doesn't love Jesus and someone who does. The difference between when you're sinning and when you're not. And what is that core difference? Well, it all comes down to the issue of worship. Who or what you worship. The Bible says that's the most important thing about you as a, as a human being. That you are made to be a worshiper. You're always worshiping something. But the who or the what you worship then defines your existence. It defines what you do with your life. It defines what you run after. It defines how you act, how you feel. Everything about you is the outworking of the things you worship. And then the Bible puts before us this, this basic dichotomy. It says you're either worshiping the true God and worshiping him in truth, so rightly, or you're worshiping idols. And it says that's the simple way you can look at everything that's happening in the world. It's either worship of God or it's worship of idols. Now, I know that when we begin to sort of talk in this language, and we're really using very biblical vocabulary here, I know a lot of people don't immediately connect with it because they can't see the immediate relevance to what they're going through at this moment. And you, probably the most obvious thing is just to say, well, what, what are these idols? You know, it's not like there's, there's a plain of Dura somewhere in London with a pillar that's as high as a palm tree and coated in gold that we're being called to go and worship, is there? So what are we talking about? Who's worshipping idols? And basically, the way the Bible uses the language of idolatry, it uses it in a very flexible format. So yes, it does speak about actual images that you bow down to, and certainly there are many people in the world today who are doing that. But it also uses it in a kind of analogical way or a kind of metaphorical way. Paul talks, for example, in the New Testament about covetousness, which he says, which is idolatry. So think about it like this. I think this is the most useful way of thinking about the Christian and idols. You're not going to experience what these guys experienced, ever, I doubt. Unless you find, no, you won't. I'm pretty sure you won't. But the next time you walk through WH Smith, to your left and to your right, as you enter, you will see magazines everywhere. And every one of those magazines, every theme, every cover of those magazines is preaching a message of idolatry. That's one way you could look at it. One of the most helpful things I've ever read on this was um, a man called David Paulison wrote a list of over 30 questions that he called x-ray questions. X-ray because he says, if you ask these honestly, they'll pierce through your skin and go right into your heart and uncover what's going on. I'm just going to read you a few to give you an example. Just to help you see that your basic instincts and troubles and struggles are all about what you worship. So examples like this. The first one, he says, what do you love and what do you hate? Remember, the first great commandment in the Bible is love the Lord your God. So the things you love, it matters what you love in life. It matters if you love Netflix. It matters if you love your spouse. It matters if you love your kids. It matters if you love your job. All of this says something about you. Some of it healthy, some of it unhealthy. Some of it has to do with the proportion. Anyway, what do you love? That's the first thing. Here's another what do you seek, aim for, and pursue? What are your goals and expectations? So he says this particularly captures that your life is active and moves in a direction. The things that you are doing with your life, in other words, are a reflection of your basic, your basic posture of worship. It all comes down to worshipping something that motivates actions. Either actions that result in fruitfulness for God because you're worshipping him, 
or actions that result in producing some other kind of offering to some other God. Another example, he says, what do you fear? He's looking at it negatively. So what do you not want to happen to you? What do you tend to worry about? So if, you, if you're always fretting about your health, for example, then you've made, made health an idol. If you're always fretting about running out of stuff, you've made money an idol. The things that most cause you anxiety when you put your head on the pillow at night could well be revealing the idols of your heart. And sinful fears, he writes, are inverted cravings. A fear and a craving, a desire, a longing, are basically two sides of the same coin. Another example, he says, what makes you tick? I love this one. He, let me, he writes it in a number of ways. Listen to this. What sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you find your garden of delight? What lights up your world? What fountain of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? What food sustains your life? What really matters to you? What castle do you build in the clouds? What pipe dreams tantalize or terrify you? What do you organize your life around? Many gripping metaphors can express the question, what are you really living for? It's just many ways of asking, what's the idol in your heart? Here's another one. Where do you find refuge? Safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security. In other words, what's the first thing you go to when life becomes overwhelming? It's your, as many preachers call it, your functional God. So while you might say, Jesus is my God, if he's not the first one you go to when you're in trouble then your functional God, the God who actually functions as your God in your life, is the thing you run to first of all when you're in trouble. It says it digs out your false trust, your escapisms that substitute for the Lord. Here's a final one I'll read. Whom must you please? For some people, idolatry is a very personal thing. It's living for the approval of someone somewhere. Whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire this approval and fear their rejection? Whose value system do you measure yourself against? And so on. Actually, let me close with this. It's more appropriate. On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? I've only read you about a handful of over 30 questions. I put them all online at one point in ancient history. I can't remember where or when. But you can find them if you Google. Friends, All I'm trying to show you is that your heart is moving towards worship all of the time and it's either moving towards Christ or it's moving towards something else. Now, let's dig into this a little bit more. The basic patterns of worship are the same with every God. And I think we can sort of break it down into four four areas. Firstly, there's the God himself or itself. Then, secondly, there's the messengers who tell you about this God. So in the New Testament, they're called evangelists, heralds, preachers, proclaimers. Thirdly, there's the call of the invitation. Put in all kinds of language throughout the New Testament, the invitation to come and worship the living God. It might be, come to me, all you who, who, uh, who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Or it might be repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. However it comes, it's an invitation to come and know God and worship him. And then the other side to that is the threat. The New Testament never holds back in saying, listen, you're called to worship God. If you don't worship God, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble eternally. 
Now, I don't know if you, you saw this, but in this passage, we're seeing the exact same pattern, almost as a mimicking, almost a very deliberate mimicking of what real, the real thing is. We've got a God. There he is, verse 1, an image made of gold. We've got a messenger in verse 4. It says, um, the herald proclaimed aloud. So here's an evangelist preaching for this God that's just a pillar that can't speak. Then you have this message, this invitation, this call. It says, you're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound, I won't read all the instruments again. We heard them many times over. You come and bow down and worship. And then you have the threat. If you don't, verse 6, whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, again, this is not language that you're going to hear at any point about any of the kind of gods that we face. However, the same basic pattern exists today in the messages that are being communicated to you and me about the idols that exist in our culture. Let me give you three examples, the big ones. First is the god of sex. I think that the messengers for the God of sex are pretty much everywhere. But most obviously in the songs, just about any R&B song, I want to touch you there and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, every, the songs on the radio that dominate the airwaves, the films that, that come over, usually from the other side of the Atlantic. And, uh, the message and the messenger is clear. And the call, the, the invitation or the command even, is something like this. It's experience transcendence. Satisfy yourself with something that will bring you more sweetness and delight than you've ever felt before. You don't have to preach it particularly strongly because it's not just what we hear, there are in Bill urges, aren't there, to act out on this. But the call, the command, the invitation is there. And so is the threat. What is the threat? The threat is FOMO, the fear of missing out. You know, when, when they made the film The 40-Year-Old Virgin, they didn't have to explain to anyone that that is a humorous concept. Because in our world, to be 40 and to be a virgin is in itself, before you've told any story about this guy, you know he's a laughing stock. The threat is you could be that person. Can you see how the idols of our age map on to what we're seeing here, which is all mimicking the real thing, the worship of the living God? Think about money. The God of money. Its messengers are all around us, the advertisements, the things that people have in the streets, the shop windows, the way people carry themselves as superior and they have more of it. And the call, the invitation, the command is earn and buy. Earn and buy. Earn and buy. And the threat is if you don't, Similar to sex, you're going to miss out, but you might have some kind of unfulfilled existence, and worse, you might sink into poverty and lack. Think about another one. The God of power, or as I think it's more likely, sort of 
thought of these days, the God of success. I think success has kind of tipped power off from being that top spot of one of the top three idols. Because I think it's not really so much about power anymore. It's more about perceived success in the eyes of others. Very similar thing, really. But who are the messengers of this, this God of success? Surely it's, it's there in our celebrity culture all around us. And I'm not just talking at the, the ridiculous end of kind of B or C-class celebrities going on islands or in, locked in a house for however many weeks and, and their lives, every detail of life being put on TV. I mean, I have no idea why people find this enjoyable or entertaining, but we do because I think it's just that voyeurism and that, that kind of that just intrigue into, into people. But the cult of celebrity goes right the way through. The desire, the honoring, the love of success and people who stand on a podium goes right the way through into every sphere of life, through sportsmanship, right into academics, the very highbrow stuff. You know, the, the Nobel laureates. It's, it's considered to be the very pinnacle of success to be awarded a Nobel Prize. And the call, the command, the invitation is work harder. Make something of your life. Strive for glory. And the threat is, if you don't, you're in danger of living an insignificant life. Doesn't that capture one of the deepest fears that people have in our culture? The fear of being forgotten. The fear of just being a smudge on the page of history. You're nothing. You didn't even make a dent. You didn't do anything. Friends, we are as susceptible to the idols of our age as Daniel, sorry, not even Daniel, his three friends here in this story were then. And looked at coldly, I know that idols always appear false when you look at them from a distance for the ridiculous things they are. I mean, in this passage, the writer is really making a bit of a joke, subtle, but it's there. Because did you notice how many times he says that Nebuchadnezzar made it, or he set it up, 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 he set it up. He keeps telling us, this thing was made by the king. It's not a real god. You know, the, the guys who have seen this, some of them would have actually seen the blacksmiths working on it in their workshops before it was put together and put in the field. So looked at in the cold of day, idols are always... You know, we can always see through them. We can always see that they're, they're really nothing. However, in the heat of the moment, with the pressures of society all around us, idols always feel like the most compelling thing to buy into. These three Hebrew men were facing these kinds of pressures. They had the pressure of the other wise men who start telling tales on them. You know, and it, it just really maps onto the experience of being a person in the modern age who, if you don't buy into the same things that everyone else around, around you is buying into, the same cults of success, the same uh, materialism, the same this, that, and the other, then you are a subject of mockery and derision. And then you see the pressure of Nebuchadnezzar who gets angry with them. And friends, to not buy into the worship systems of the world in which we live is to subject yourself to the anger of men. When your message cuts across the culture, people feel that you're judging them. 
people feel that if, if you don't think that their God is something, that you're mocking them, that you're belittling them and what they live for. Now, these guys felt all of this, but I think probably the most important thing that they might have felt in that moment was this. That the God that was set up in the plane looked more real to them, could have looked more real to them than the God that they were meant to be worshipping as Hebrews. It's there, isn't it, in Nebuchadnezzar's question. When he asked them, verse 15, he says, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's saying, in effect, it's the same basic issue that we all face. Doesn't this feel more real to you right now? This thing that's tempting you, this thing that's drawing you on, this thing that's compelling you and motivating you, this thing that you worship. Doesn't it feel more real to you now in this moment than words about a God that you heard of from somewhere in a book? That's the contest, isn't it? Who is this God who's going to deliver you? And for them, the things that they read about in a book were even weakened by their experiences. The fact that they were in Babylon in the first place, as I've been saying to you. Hadn't they been betrayed by their God? Wasn't he much weaker than they thought he was? He should have been. And so it is, the way your heart will play tricks on you when idols seduce you and lure you away from true worship of the living God. It's always that contest. Which one appears most real right now? The story moves on. And we see these men exercising their faith. I want us to just think about the triumph of faith in this next section from verse 16. How is it that these three men overcome what must have felt like the most, the most frightening and difficult trial of their lives? All they had to do, do you notice this? All that they had to do was just prostrate their bodies in a field. Now, in one sense, you do it all the time when you lie down to go to bed. So they could have sort of rationalized this in their heads and said, all we need to do is just go through the motions and just pretend to worship. We just, it's just what we do with our bodies doesn't matter anyway. God sees our hearts. And so many people have reasoned when it comes to the ways you engage with the world that ultimately as long as you're, you know, God's looking at your heart, so what you do with your body doesn't really matter that much. And friends, I think, that's, I think it's a lie. I think that for these men, they understood that all they had was this body they were in. So what they did with their body was of all importance to the living God who they were called to worship. Now, I'm kind of saying this as a brief aside before, because I, I think this is really important for us when it comes to the theme of worship. God cares about what you do with your body when you worship. That's how we can talk about it positively. This really has nothing to do with the passage. I'm really just going off on one here. But I want to talk to you some more about this at a future point. But one of the reasons why when we worship, we, we, we want to engage ourselves, lift our hands, raise our voices, is because worship isn't just a heart thing. It's a whole body thing because you are one unit. You are a being. 
For these men, they understood that it wasn't a casual issue what they did with their body there in that field. If they bow or they didn't bow was everything. And so it is with you. God's given you certain things. He's given you a body. He's given you cash. He's given you abilities and gifts. What you do with the things you have is an expression of worship. Your body, your possessions, your gifts, your eyes, all of it matters. It's all moving in worship towards something. What are you worshipping? How is it then that they overcome? And I think it really comes down to this single word, that they overcame by faith. And I really want to give you hope, friends, that if you find yourself, I think probably as even as we're speaking, the Holy Spirit is pinpointing areas in your life where you know you're being seduced by a particular form of idolatry, a relationship, a person, success in your chosen field, whatever it is. The Holy Spirit is putting his finger on things in people's hearts right now. And the question you should be wrestling with is, how do I overcome? The answer for these men was that they overcame by faith. I want to read you two verses that help us see this. Ephesians 6 says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What you choose to believe, in other words, will either allow you to be safe or to be a victim of the darts, the ideas, the things that are flying at you in the world all around you. In Revelation chapter 12, it depicts a great battle between light and darkness, between good and evil. And it talks about believers who, who, who survive through this battle, through this trial, through this fire. And it says these precious words about them. It says, they've conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. In other words, what they believed. Because they love not their lives even unto death. That's a perfect summary of what's going on here in Daniel chapter 3. And I want to, just looking from verse 16, we can see three ways that their faith gets to work on their behalf. Look at verse 16. Their faith gives them a kind of perspective on the situation. Because after Nebuchadnezzar has said to them, who's this God who'll deliver you? They answer and say, oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love that. It's kind of like in your face, Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, you know, in the films when they say, you don't have the security clearance to know this information. That's kind of what they're saying. They're saying, we'll serve you in just about every part of our life. But listen, there's a part of our life that has a higher security clearance. And that part's the part that's dedicated to God. And you actually can't question us about that, even though we're your loyal subjects. Now, the only reason they could do that was because of their faith. Because when they stepped back from the situation, they could see things. They could see the whole situation mapped out in the light of day, there's God. Then somewhere down there, there's Nebuchadnezzar. And then way down below him, there's that pillar that he's put in a field. Faith gives you that kind of perspective on life. It helps you to see the ridiculousness of the idolatries all around you. 
To not see it is to be captured by it. It's the most real thing. It's in front of your eyes and you can't help but run and walk and do what everyone else does in, in worship of this particular idol. But faith helps you to step back and see it with new eyes. Oh, it's actually not that big or that powerful. That's what these guys saw. Faith gave them perspective. Then, in the next verse, we see that faith makes them really bold. It says, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. It gives them this this gut level boldness and confidence. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't have any fear or weren't nervous. I think they probably were. And whenever you say no to sin, there's always going to be that nagging fear that you've done the wrong thing. That maybe you are going to miss out. Or whenever you say no to an opportunity that you know is only going to feed your idolatries, you're always going to have that that remnant little seed of fear. Maybe I made the wrong call there. But for these men, their trust in God says, no, we are boldly and confidently, we're we're putting our stakes on this. We're putting, as I say, all our eggs in one basket. We're going all in on the poker table. This is it. One way, no way, other way for us. It's all about God. It gave them that kind of conviction. Another thing their faith did is it it began to deliver them from fear. The fears that I've been describing. It says in the next verse, but if not, but if not. Those are really important words. They're saying we're going to survive, but if not. In 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 that little phrase, they're saying we might die. But if not. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They're saying, in effect, you can take our lives and ultimately it really doesn't matter that much to us anyway. I love how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 10 where he says, He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, to put it in other language, he's saying, what's the worst that can happen to you if you reject the idols of the world that you live in? And Jesus is saying, the worst that can happen is that you get killed, physically killed. And he's saying, it's not that bad. I'll show you, it's not that bad, I'm going to do it later on. And then I'll rise from the dead, and so will you. It's wonderful, isn't it? How fear, which can be so controlling, it just suddenly evaporates. What's the worst that can happen? I remember years ago, that was the the Dr. Pepper slogan, wasn't it? (laughs) Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) And a guy... Drinks a can, goes up to kiss this girl on their first date and then burps in her face. Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that could happen? But I think that is pretty much just in essence what it means to live by faith. What's the worst that could happen? If you trust God with everything that you are, what's the worst that can be done to you in this life? Isn't that it? These guys just say, oh, it's, it's all or nothing. Either God's real or he's not. If he's not, then... It's all meaningless anyway. And if he's real, I'm trusting him entirely. Which means, my friends, 
If you recognize an idol problem in your heart, and I assume that all of us do because I think we all struggle with things in different ways at different times. If you recognize an idol problem in your heart, your deepest problem is a belief problem, a faith problem, what seems most real to you, what seems most controlling and true. And note then, that faith is not just something that happens to you passively. Now the Bible does talk about faith as a gift. You can't believe in him at all unless God enables you to, unless he opens your eyes, unless he gives you faith. However, it also talks about your responsibility to take faith and put it to work on your behalf. That's what we're reading in Ephesians 6. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. It's like how Jocelyn described it um, a few weeks ago during the worship time. When she, she, she told us about the picture of Moses standing before Pharaoh. And God had given Moses this kind of amazing, miraculous um, ability that he could throw his staff on the ground and it would turn into, into a snake. And it would be a sign before, Moses, so before Pharaoh that what Moses was preaching was true. And she said, what you need to do is, is throw, to throw your, your staff on the ground and say, this is what I believe and this is what I know is true, and then to walk in the light of that. That's the Christian life. And friends, whilst faith is something that you receive from God, it's also something that then you have to put to work on your behalf so that you actively, and don't passively walk through life just blown around by every single insinuation and idea and temptation and, and seduction that happens to you. You rather push back now and then constantly, and say, I know what is true. I know what God has shown me to be true. That's what it means to take up the shield of faith. It's also what we read in Revelation 12, and it says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They start speaking the truth to one another. And then it says, because they love not their lives even unto death. I want to ask you, In your particular battle, imagining that you are one of these Hebrew boys and your idol is there in front of you and you're being called to bow down to it, what does faith look like for you right now? What does a faith decision look like for you? You need to step back and ask yourself that question and then choose to make that decision. Don't just keep walking forward doing the thing you've always done. God's given you the grace to make a faith decision, a decision that is deliberate, active, and that is based on God's word rather than on what you feel in that moment. Lastly, I want us to think about this salvation that came to them through the fire. You see, as important as faith is, at this point in the story, they're still dead men. Yes, they've got some belief in God, but so far it's not got them very far. It doesn't seem... In the next paragraph from verse 19, we start seeing all the problems just being stacked up and how this is just an impossible situation for these men. We read about verse 19 about Nebuchadnezzar being filled with fury. He's mad with them. It's not good when he's, he's mad. You know, he likes to tear people limb from limb, doesn't he? That kind of thing. So being, having him angry with you is a problem. Then, then the furnace is superheated seven times. It's just they keep pouring in coal Buckets and buckets of the stuff until this thing is white hot and you can't get near it. You ever been near a bonfire 
on, on, uh, on, on the 5th of November, one of those big ones, and you can be 100 feet away, and you feel this thing. It's like burning your face. And then, I love this bit. It says that they were, they're bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. In other words, he's saying, these guys were really flammable. <laughs> I think that's exactly what the author wants us to understand. He's saying, you know what? It's almost as though they've been doused with petrol. These guys are just going to go poof as soon as they touch this fire. And then their gods get killed when they're trying to bring them to the fire. Their skin's melted off and they, they start dropping dead on the ground. Well, all of this is just meant to heighten the sense of the problem that they're in. They're in a little bit of a, a, you know, a doozy, as some people say. And uh, the, the issue is they've got faith, but faith only works if God is good. The, the trouble is getting hotter for them, and faith only works if God is good. And then, how the story then moves on for us, if the whole, if the whole chapter is a picture of the Christian life, and the, the essential struggle between true worship and idolatry, the, the way this chapter ends is a picture of salvation. And I want to run you through, as we close, some of the ways in which this becomes quite evident let me give you six reasons. You don't need to write them down or memorize them. I just want to run through them with you. The first is that they are saved by a savior. Did you see it? Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and it says he's astonished. Why? Because he says, how many of them did we put in? You'd think he'd remember. He just spoke to them. He says, how many? He's confused. He thinks, Have I, am I missing something? They says, but I see four men. And then he says, the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Lord Jesus Christ was born around AD 0, whatever the date was. That's when he had flesh, but he existed long before that. I can't prove it to you, but it's my absolute conviction that here, this is the Son of God who's come to them in the fiery furnace. The reason I say that is because there are a number of there are a number of these occasions in the Bible when an angel, a messenger appears and this angel is sometimes called the Lord, as in Yahweh. And sometimes people worship the angel. And you think, well, how can... No one can see the Father, but the Son can reveal himself to us even before he's took on flesh, even before he's been born to a virgin 2,000 years ago. And this is happening 600 years before Jesus would eventually be born. But friends, it's my total conviction. Here we're seeing Christ before he's born. So a savior comes to them. And in that, you have a picture of the fact that the savior identifies with them. It says, the way Nebuchadnezzar puts it there, he says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. When you read your New Testament, one of the things that we learn about Jesus is that he by taking on flesh, he stepped into the experiences that you and I face. The same temptations, the same struggles, the same challenges, the same idols beckoning him and seducing him. He has stepped into the very fires that you and I walk through. And then we see how he, you can also think of it this way, that he descended right into their, into their suffering. Because I think that the picture here of a fiery furnace almost 
is it mirrors the picture of hell, doesn't it? Except this isn't God's hell, this is Nebuchadnezzar's hell. But the very fact that this Savior comes in and steps into the fire, it just reminded me of how... Well, let me just read to you a little, um, little story. A man called Oz Guinness wrote this originally, how in the Soviet Union, um, the Communist Party tried to wipe out uh, Christianity altogether. But he tells a story of how a KJB agent went to one of the nation's churches on a Sunday morning, and, and uh, he was struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a large, large size, life-size carving of Christ on the cross. And he asked her, Babushka, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? How's that? And she says, why, of course, she shot back, but only if you crucify him first. Now, putting the accent aside for one moment, what she said is, is absolutely spot on. He asked her, will you worship Stalin? And she says, only if you crucify him first. The difference when we think about Jesus between him and every other idol that's on offer is that the difference between Jesus, the true God, and the idols is that Jesus has suffered for you. Your idols will never sacrifice for you. They call you to sacrifice for them. Christ suffered on your behalf. The Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. Now, we could debate all day long whether that's theologically accurate. But the point that he suffered on the cross and went through the fires of God's wrath on your behalf, what a picture this is for us of a savior who descended right in to take your place in that fire. Then he frees them. Nebuchadnezzar sees that they're now walking around unbound. It's a picture of the Christian life, how Christ comes alongside us and then he liberates us. Without Christ, you're a slave to the idols of this world. It's inevitable because you have to worship something and if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping an idol. You are bound to idolatry. But Christ comes in and he liberates you. The only true freedom is the freedom that Christ gives to become submitted to him in worship. And then they escape pure and undefiled through the fire. It says of them a little bit later that all the prefects and the governors and so on, they gather and they see that the fire hasn't touched them. It's had no power over their bodies. And it puts it like this. The hair of their heads was not singed. You know that thing when you light your gas hob and then all the hairs on your hand get burnt off and it stinks. I've done it so many times. I must be an idiot. But they said they, these guys came out of this furnace and their hair was totally intact. It's a picture of the Christian life, how God's going to bring us through the fire, purified and clean. And finally, the way the story ends for these men, it says in the last verse that the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. In other words, just as this is the promise for every Christian, it says that we're going to endure these trials for a while. But our ultimate end is that we're going to be seated with Christ on high, governing and ruling with him, given the universe as our playground. You have a choice, all of us have a choice. 
It's a one-off choice. It's the choice you make at the very beginning of the Christian life. If you're not a Christian, this is the choice that's before you. But it's also the choice that every Christian has to make on a day-by-day basis, and even, in fact, in a momentary basis, the choice between whether you settle for what you see and potentially waste your life chasing the same old idols that people have been chasing for millennia. For what end? Or you can waste your life in another way. You can waste it by counting your life not that precious, providing that you worship the living God. I love the way Nebuchadnezzar sums this up for us. Sometimes he seems crazy and sometimes he just seems the most sane man in the story. I mean, one minute he's threatening to tear people limb from limb, but then he comes up with something like this. He says in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, my own command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. That, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian. God's given you something, your body, your gifts, your time, your talents. Choose now who you're going to yield them up to. When you offer them to Christ, it may seem like a colossal waste to many. Like the woman who brought the jar of perfume, broke it and poured it out worth a year's wages on Jesus' feet. And everyone said, what a waste. And Jesus said, no. There's a picture of what the Christian life is meant to be. That the more you give to Christ, to everyone else it looks like a total waste, futile. But to Jesus, it's the essence of pure devotion. He loves it. He loves your gifts. He loves your devotion. He loves your heart. He wants you entirely. You have a choice, don't you? All the time you have choices. I want to close back in 1 Peter where he says that we've for a little while been grieved by various trials but then he says though you've not seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends we're going to take communion now. And as we take the bread and the wine, God's given us this as a gift to enable us in this moment to feel with our senses something of the reality of Christ in his suffering. That hopefully as we eat the bread and drink the wine, our idols will feel less real as Christ in his glory on the cross dying for us and for our sins appears more real. And so I want to invite you that as we pass the bread around, that you take this moment to confess to God the idols that you know you've been struggling with and resisting and say to him, Lord Jesus, I want to live for you entirely.